Giannavisi drove home from work um, to go walk to, to walk to her house. She got out of her car, as she always does, and she started walking toward an apartment where she saw, she saw a shadowy figure come toward her. She couldn't avoid him, and before she knew, whoever this was had stabbed her. She screamed and she yelled, and lights went on all over the apartment complex. Windows opened, and one person may have yelled down below, scaring off her attacker. But the lights went off. Attacker came back. He came back two more times, and she screamed each time, and lights would go on. Finally, after 30 minutes, someone called the police. And the police did a great job. They showed up with in under two minutes to respond. Unfortunately, when they showed up, she was already passed. Now, during the police interviews, over 37 people had heard, opened the windows, and seen or, or, or witnessed this happen. And they asked the 37 people why you didn't call or intervene, and they said, most of them said this, I just didn't want to get involved. Now, that's a true story, but it's an extreme story that illustrates something we face. You know, we all want to be a good person, make a difference, love God, love people. And then we have all these practical needs that our world has. I mean, you pull up next to a homeless person. You see somebody with a sign. You hear about a family who's going through a, a separation or someone who has a new diagnosis or people who've been marginalized. What do we do? I mean, whatever the need is, don't we feel like we should do something? Maybe it's our resources they, they need. Maybe it's our energy or our love or our support, whatever it may be. But oftentimes, it's so overwhelming and so many needs, we think, I just don't want to get involved. I mean, the, in, the, the needs are, are endless. We have our own needs to take care of. And then beyond pra that physical, practical help, we have Jesus who's asked us to go and give spiritual help to a world. To go and talk about what he offers so they can come near to him. And, and then we see there are our, our co-workers who are far from God or our family or friends who don't know him yet. And to get involved there would be a pretty big step. And so we just, I'd rather not get involved. And today's parable is going to hit us squarely in the comfort zone. It's a challenge to a life that's spent safely addressing our own needs. And today's parable is controversial at places. And there may be some of you here who need to email me or talk to me afterwards, and that's okay. This is a controversial parable. So the one thing I want you to learn from today, let me give it away, the one thing. I want you to be challenged, inspired, and encouraged to be people who go out to a hurting world and love God and love people without condition. That's it. It's as simple as that. Now with that, let's take a look at Luke 10. You can turn there. In your Bible, you can scroll there, you can follow on the screens. The parable of the Good Samaritan. We've all heard it, but there's some surprises, some surprises for us this morning. Verse 25. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, how do I get saved? This is the question. How do I inherit eternal life? And first of all, this expert of the law... Culturally, this means he's a Bible expert. You see, the Torah was what they called the law. He was an expert in the Bible. He knew this forwards and backwards. Now, not only that, this Bible expert, he already knew the answers to his questions. He already had his opinions made up. This guy was a, he was not new to this debate game. He was part of an elite group a long-standing movement and member of this religious establishment. And it's important to know that no matter how Jesus responds to these questions, the man has a response to that. He's gone through the whole thing. So his question, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? He has all the answers. And so Jesus responds in 26, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now, this is so typically Jesus. If you read him throughout the Gospels, he will often answer a question with a question. And so he says, hey, you're, you're the expert in the Bible. How do you read it? What would you say? The lawyer was happy to oblige. He said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And that is a beautiful answer. That answer is a quote from the Old Testament. It's part of the Hebrew prayer called the Shema. They would pray every morning and every night, Jesus included. So he quotes something that is central to the belief. He, he, he says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. And that might sound familiar, Orchard, because that's where we get our vision of love God and love people. From this very place. I mean, this is central to the call of the Bible. This is the DNA. This verse is the DNA of Jesus' followers. Love God, love people. And when the lawyer was asked what he thought would bring eternal life, he quotes the Bible perfectly. Love God, love people. And Jesus gives him credit. He says in 28, you've answered correctly. And he just says, do this and, and you'll live. Like, correct answer, now go do it. Now Jesus knows that he's not done. Jesus knows the religious expert has a lot more he wants to prove. And this is a, this is a test, right? It's a test here. And so um, it's, it kind of makes me laugh. The person who's an expert in God's word is asking a loaded question to the author of God's word. It's, this is like somebody who, who read a book and studied the book and, and learned all about the book, hoping to trap the author in a debate. It reminds me of this, this story about a, a young man who got his first Model T when they were first released, and it was a big deal. He got a Model T, and he was driving it down the road. He, he hadn't had it that long, and, and, and it broke down. And he pulled it off to the side of the road. There was not many cars on the road at that time. And he had some mechanical ability, so he, he got under that hood, and he tinkered around, and he worked what seemed like for hours. And it wasn't until later that afternoon when the next car drove by. It was a limousine, and an older gentleman uh, got out. I said, hey, well, what seems to be the problem? <laughs> it's my new car. I, ju I just got this thing, and it's already broken. And I, there's nothing I can do to fix it. And the old man said, would you mind if I take a look at it? To which the young guy said, uh, go ahead. Kind of rolled his eyes and said, you know, if, he, if this old guy thinks he knows this new technology, good for him. The older man got under the hood and fiddled for what seemed like only a minute, not long at all. Grunted, closed the hood, and told the young man, well, go ahead and start it up. The young man almost laughed. In fact, he started to laugh, and he saw the old man was serious. And, and he goes over, and he, he turns it, and it starts right up. And he's amazed, and he jumps out and says, I tried everything. I, I know mechanics. I, I tried it all. There was no fixing it. How did you do it? And as the older man got back into his car, he said, oh, I'm Henry Ford. I made that. I made that. And Jesus, the master teacher, has more in store for this expert because he, he made that. And he made the man. And so he knows, he sees the game afoot here. We're not even to the parable yet. Can you already tell that something's afoot? It's, there's already drama in this moment as people are around and he's asking these testing questions and Jesus is giving him credit and letting him. And then here we go. The Bible expert wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, and who's my neighbor? The word justify means to show oneself as righteous. He wants to prove that not only is his answer right, but his heart is right. His actions are right. He wants to prove himself righteous. And so he says, Who, who's my neighbor? He got the first answer right, love your neighbor as yourself. The second question was, well, who's my neighbor? 
You see, that's the question because these religious elite have already watched Jesus as he's fed over 10,000 people of all kinds of backgrounds and experiences and past. They saw, they were shocked as he let an unclean woman, a sinner, wash his feet. They've seen all kinds of things. They've seen him heal unclean and homeless. They've seen him help the marginalized and disgusting. Jesus has the nerve to eat and drink with sinners. Oh, they can't believe this. Jesus hangs out with the dregs of the society and those far from God. And the religious elite know that while they and Jesus agree that thou shalt love God and love thy neighbor, they don't agree on who the neighbor is. That's what this is all about. Who is my neighbor is a question from somebody looking for a loophole. It implies there's people who are not my neighbor. It implies you must go through and detect, well, yes and no, yes and no, and help the yeses. They agree on something, and the, young, the, uh, the, the lawyer wants to trap Jesus, and so he proposes this. He asks the question, who's my neighbor, and then sits back, letting Jesus trap himself on his own words. But Jesus doesn't play the game. He could answer the man, but he starts with a story. And a parable, remember, is a story that holds secrets for us to find of God's nature and God's kingdom. So let's jump in on verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus mentions a place that the listening audience would have immediately referenced in their mind. You see, leaving Jerusalem, you would go down 1,700 feet on this road to Jericho. It's called the Jericho Road. And when we think of a road, we think of a, a road where you can drive a car down. But this is, this is a video of modern people walking in the ancient road. And I want you to get a sense for how narrow it is. And also look at the cliff. There's a cliff up and a cliff down. This is not a highway. This is a road that goes through some perilous areas. It's never wide. And so there's a man, and he's on this road. When he's attacked by robbers... They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. The plot thickens. You see, but even this wouldn't have caused any, any gasp in the, in the audience. They know this road, they know the Jericho Road, and at, at the wrong time, people get robbed there all the time. Solo travelers are in trouble. This would be like me telling a parable and saying, a man was traveling down from Aspen to Carbondale, and then he encountered traffic. Like, no one's surprised. Like, yeah, that happens. See, the field is set. The pieces are set. Nothing shocking has happened yet. But what's about to happen is going to shock everyone. See it with me. A beaten and bloody man discarded on the side of the road. Now, when we say he's on the side of the road, when you watch that video, he can't be too far on the side of the road or he's down the cliff or on the cliff. He's on the side of that path. Probably part of his body across the path. Bleeding, probably moaning, needing medical attention. When somebody else walks upon it. 31. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by the other side. Now, I, there's a belief that Jesus was making a bit of a joke here, because is there another side? What he's saying is, this priest got as far as he could away from the man on a one path. I'm going to the other side of one path. And he did everything he could to hug the cliff and stay away. He didn't want to even accident, accidentally get near the man. Now, the audience would be a bit uncomfortable by this new development. You see, a priest traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, obviously, in that culture, had just got done working in the temple. He's an important man. 
He's in there working for God. He's got things going on. And now he's going back home, but he's, he's been doing some important things. A priest is the most holy and highly regarded in their society. Priests are, are wealthy. They have honor. He's headed home, and he sees this beaten man. And the question of the whole parable was, who is my neighbor? And it's obvious already that for this priest, at least, the answer is, that beaten man is not my neighbor. That much is clear. The priest would say, that's, that's not my, my neighbor. Now, the lawyer would have wondered, where's Jesus going? Because we're off the debate now, and we're into, we're into a story, and the priest would have associated himself more with the priest than the man who was beaten. So he, he doesn't know where we're going in this. The priest passes by, but then here comes another one, verse 32. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. So here we have a different character, our second person walking through. A Levite from the tribe of Levi, it's a, a holy tribe that had more religious duties than the other tribes. A Levite knew the law of the Bible. They, their tribe was enmeshed them. So we, we have a priest and we have a Levite. One's an expert in the Bible, the other's an expert in religion. And the, and the lawyer who's listening to this parable is probably a Levite based on his position. Both men pass him by. For the Bible expert, he associates with both the Levite and the priest. And he's now he's feeling a bit trapped. Where are we going with this, Jesus? So we have a priest and a Levite pass by. And in the Jewish tradition, often in a, in a story, the third person comes along and kind of sews it up really nicely. So everybody's like, okay, who's next? Who's going to make the difference? And they're all expecting Jesus to go, and then you walk by. What do you do? And leave it to you, like, oh, he's going to, but Jesus doesn't even do that. He doesn't put him in the story. He's going to sew it up nicely, but a little different. And when he, when he drops this next part, jaws drop. And the jaws that don't drop clench. He's gone too far this time. Verse 33. But then a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was and saw him and took pity on him. Now, I don't have the hours to tell you the history between Samaria and Israel and why they can't stand each other. This is, there, there is no other people group that was more despised than the Samaritans. And in fact, John 8, the, the, the religious guys are, are, are talking to Jesus and they hurl an insult at him. You know what they call him? You're a Samaritan. They, they call him that name as if it's this derogatory name. They couldn't stand Samaritans. They couldn't stand anything about them. These two societies, these two cultures were at war with one another. They do not mix. These are people they've looked down on because of how they were born or how they lived. And our, our humanity continues to perpetuate some of this kind of stuff. You know, we have groups in our own culture who are judged by where they were born or how they live. And chances are, you, just by being you, are a Samaritan to someone else. Oh, that person. Like, you, you can flip through the cable news network until you find some place that goes, yeah, I'm probably not the right person. Like, every, they'll talk down to somebody on every different channel. Find yours. We're each the Samaritan somewhere. And, and honestly, we kind of each know who the Samaritan is personally. Maybe you've come from a life where you have an acute dislike of a certain type. That doesn't even touch what's going on here. This isn't acute. This is chronic racism and hatred. This is deep in their society, in their culture. It's hard for us to grasp just how shocking it would have been to introduce a Samaritan into this story. It's called the Good Samaritan. 
Now, if, if, Jesus had, if Jesus had said that out loud then, they would have laughed. It's like an oxymoron to them. In the midst of this parable, Jesus is unveiling something about God's nature and God's heart. That's what parables do. Where is he going with this? Because this is not going the way that we thought it should go. But Jesus doesn't just put the Samaritan in the story. As we continue, he makes him a hero. Verse 34. The Samaritan went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two coins. These were huge, um, expensive coins, and, and gave them to the innkeeper with instructions. Look after him. And he said, when I return, I'll reimburse, and reimburse you any extra expense you may have. In a shocking twist, the Samaritan rescues the man, revives him, takes him to an inn, gets him room and board, and then he leaves money and says, I'll be back. And I'll repay anything, any other debts that there are from this, I'll repay. The least likely person in the culture comes out as a hero and does what the celebrated, powerful, religious people would not do. And with that, Jesus turns to this slack-jawed lawyer and asks him just one simple question. Just one question, he says, the lawyer who wanted to trap him. So he just says this, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Now this is masterful. The lawyer asks, who's my neighbor? Did Jesus answer that question? No. Jesus isn't, isn't in the business of going through and qualifying everybody that you need to, group by group. He was asked, who's my neighbor? And, and Jesus asked, which one was a neighbor? Who was the neighbor? And this is huge. You know, we say love God and love people. If I immediately go, yeah, but which people should I love? I've missed it. I've missed it. I'm qualifying something that had no qualification. You see, you don't define who your neighbor is. You define yourself as a neighbor. You don't try to define who you should help, you define yourself as a helper. We don't try to define which people we should love. We simply define, define ourselves as, we love, we love people. The expert asked the question in the wrong way. You see, he knew about love God, love people. That was his first answer. But he wanted to know which people. He wanted to know about asterisks. Which one's my neighbor, Jesus? Because that implies there's some non-neighbors out there I don't have to help and I don't have to love. This expert in the Bible hits up against something that we need to be very careful of. And I want to be careful of in this section. But I'm going to ask some questions that I think we should ask ourselves diagnostically. We should ask our, our own hearts. So ask this of yourself. Are there people that you don't love? Is there a certain race of people that you just don't care for? Love God and love people. Is there a certain status or connection, color, creed, gender, whatever, identity that, that, you, that you don't want to love? Love God, love people. Is there a political party you can't bring yourself to love? Love God, love people. Is there a certain type of person that you shun? Is there a certain type of person that if you walked up on a road and they were beaten on the side of the road, you would quickly shuffle past so as not to get involved? Hard questions. 
in this parable, Jesus challenges us some deep places within us that can bring up some anger or some justification. Because the reality is whenever you're confronted with truth, you have two choices. I can justify my belief or adjust my belief. And that's what this parable asks us to do. Adjust or justify. People ask me a lot about the culture we're in, and they ask me this, who do you guys allow in your church? They don't believe it when I say there's room for everyone. They don't believe it when I say love God, love people, all people. But I believe this parable answers it for us. I believe we should let anyone in here. I believe sinners, saints, I believe even Bible experts should be allowed in here. Samaritans, people of any past, any experience, any background. And here's the reality. I've worked through this in my own heart, and I want to say this very carefully. People in this modern culture choose to identify in many different ways. Infinite number of ways. People identify in their own lives as all types of groups and subgroups and categories and nuanced titles. Back then it was sinner, priest, Samaritan, Jew, outsider, foreigner. It's not hard to turn on the news and find someone fighting about someone else's identity. And I just want to make it clear how I feel about the issue. Non-politically. Spiritually. You see, well, are you guys ready, first of all? When anyone, no matter how they identify, however they identify, comes into contact with me, the only identity I'm really concerned about is that they identify more with Jesus by having met me. All the other ways that humans love to categorize, that's humanity. But my heart is this. When you come into contact with me or the orchard, my hope is that people don't feel like they need to identify more with a people group or anything in humanity, but instead identify more with heaven. It's not my job. In order, it's not our calling to get caught up in resolving the infinite identities that our culture has to offer. It's our purpose to love all people of all walks of life and identify more with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the revolutionary rabbi who preached love and grace and justice. Because Jesus is about making us each a new creation. He is about bringing, he's about bringing death to life. Jesus is in the business of bringing people from wherever they are, saint, sinner, doesn't matter, to identify more with him. That's his concern, identifying with Jesus. And let's, let me just tell you this. I don't have to make it my business to change anyone's identity. If they come to Jesus, I let him work on that, like he did with me, like he did with many of you. I am not called and I'm not capable enough to change someone's identity. That is sacred territory for God. That's where he speaks to someone's soul. It's when he gets to have his word and his say. And so they made the orchard be known as a community that we love people, all people, and that we call them to come and identify foremost with Jesus Christ. 
We say there's room for everybody here, but we have another one that says this. We keep the main thing the main thing, and the main thing is Jesus. And, and when all the other agendas out there come in, come in, come in, we stop at one agenda, that anyone who encounters us would identify more with our Savior, Jesus Christ. Love God, love people. And may we, his followers, may we identify with Jesus more and more every day as he does that work in us. Jesus asked in verse 36, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert of the law replied, I can almost hear his like, through clenched teeth, the one who had mercy on him. Did you notice he can't even say the name? He can't even say Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy. And Jesus goes, go and do likewise. Go and be like a Samaritan. Go and be like the Samaritan. Talk about a social grenade. He just set off in this, go and be like the Samaritan. The lawyer wanted to know the principles of loving God and loving people. The lawyer wanted to talk about the uh, merit of neighborliness. While Jesus just said, man, just go and be a neighbor. Jesus didn't want to talk about principle. He wanted to talk about practice. So as we go forth from here, I don't want us to go forth and discuss the merits of neighborliness. I want us to go be neighbors. To go forth and love God and love people. What happened here is shocking to the religious people, but it's, it's that man, but it's, it's beautiful. Have you ever been somewhere and you've seen this happen? Where someone comes to somebody who, who they have no association with and every reason not to help, and they just help them. There's something so, so right about that. There's something so gospel, so Jesus, when we, we set aside all biases or anything and we just love and help. It's beautiful, and the world takes notice. And when you hear a story about it, it settles into your heart and you go, yes, that's it. I want to play a video for you. It's a surprising video. It's from Steve Harvey. It's from his talk show. Steve Harvey is a, is a believer. He's a comedian. He's an actor. He's also worth $160 million, and that matters in this video, and you'll see why. But I want you to catch a glimpse of what it looks like in this video. This one is a surprise. Okay, I said no surprises. Sorry. That's what you're saying to me, Alex? Sorry. Okay, this is a surprise calling in via satellite from Orlando. Let's see who it is. Hi, Steve. This is Rich List from Orlando, Florida, and I called you to wish you a happy birthday and ask you one question. Do you still love me, baby? I'm waiting for my answer, buddy. Hey, man. I love you, man. Uh, I love you too, man. Yeah. You, you want to say hi to your girlfriend? Who, Becky there? Yeah? Hey, man. Uh... <laughs> say hi. Hey, Becky. Hi, Steve. Jesus. <laughs> We love you, buddy. Uh, these people. And we wish you the best happy birthday. I was uh, 26 years old, man. I was struggling. Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't have nothing. And these people 
owned a furniture store in Cleveland at a... They took me in and gave me my first contract with my little carpet cleaning company. When I became a comedian at 27, I didn't have money to travel. They gave me an account at their travel agency. And man, I ran up a bill like $11,000 just trying to travel and make it. Them people right there. You know, man, they helped me out. Hey, man, I got money now, Rich. You got money? <laughs> Matter of fact, hey, Rich, I'm gonna send yeah. a plane to pick up you and Becky. I'm gonna fly y'all to Chicago for the show. I've been looking for you for years, man. Found me, baby. All right. Have a great birthday, Steve. Have a great birthday. Thank you. I, I want to say, hey, man. What? You bailed me, man. I, I never forgot it. Thank you, man. Okay. Oh, we love you. We love you, Steve. I love y'all, too, man. All right, I didn't need you. All right. When right. <laughs> you see that, there's no politics. No... When you step in with compassion like that and love like that, and I don't know the full story, but you notice that lives change. Communities change. Towns can change. Nations change. The world has changed. In fact, in fact, listen to this. From Julian the Apostate, he was a Roman emperor after the time of Jesus, and he wanted to stop this, this upstart movement called Christianity. He tried to stop it, but despite his best efforts, it would not quit. It only grew faster. It only grew stronger. He was livid about it, and in fact, he wrote a letter to one of his counterparts where he talked about how he could not stop Christianity. I'm going to read his words. Nothing has contributed to the progress of this superstition of the Christians so much as their charity to strangers. The irreverent Christians provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. And all see that our people are lacking aid from us. You see, Christianity is spreading because these upstarts are caring for all the poor, even those not in their tribe. During this time, he goes on to talk about how uh, the Jews were helping the Jewish people and the Greeks helping the, G the Greek poor and the Romans helping the Roman poor, but these Christians are helping everyone, and they won't stop. And because of that, it's growing. He couldn't stop Christianity. And he, the reason he claimed he couldn't stop Christianity was because of the generosity and love that they had for people. It's as if they embodied this call to be good Samaritans. And I believe we're still called to be these people. I believe we're, we're, we're supposed to be that kind of people where Christianity would be thriving because of how we love. How do we reclaim this? The first way we reclaim this, we must know Jesus. Not religiously, but personally. Not like the priest and think, I'm saved because I do good. And not like the lawyer who thinks, I'm good because I'm not that bad of that person. But for a person to truly be a good neighbor to the world, to truly love God and love people, we would have to know Jesus in our heart. Because the kind of love this world needs requires generous people that <laughs> Julian the Apostate begrudgingly described in his letter. And for us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, this generosity must come from a deep well of gratitude. This story, this parable is so easy. A good Samaritan. That's all it is. It, it, it talks about a man who was broken and, and 
And catch this, the Levite, the law, walked by. The priest, religion, walked by. Religion and the law neither helped the man. So what does this mean for me passing it on? Well, here's the bottom line of the whole parable. This is it. As a Jesus follower, I wasn't always a good Samaritan. You see, there was a time in my life where I was needy for salvation. There's a time in my life where I was spiritually broken. And on my journey, traveling through life, I tried it all, but nothing in this life could help my soul the way I needed. And on this path, at one point, the world and my sin ambushed me. And they beat me mercilessly. They robbed me of my innocence, and they left me in the ditch, suffering from my decisions. And I hoped, I hoped that religion would save me, and I tried many of them. And surely the, the religion would come to aid my soul. But when religion arrived and found me in the ditch and saw that I was beaten and broken, it had no answers. And religion scooted over as far as it could and shuffled past me with no help to offer my soul. Then I discovered the law of the Bible. Thou shalt not, thou shalt. I can, I can do this. This is sin management. Do these things good, don't do this bad. And I threw myself into earning my salvation. But when the law showed up to help me in my condition that I was wrecked, it had no answers for me. And good works and good deeds shuffled away from me. And I was left more exhausted than before. I was lost in my sin. My mistakes in the past were obvious. My present was full of anxiety and fear and brokenness. I was beaten, left for dead. Who would rescue me in my condition? But then someone approached. A foreigner. Someone from the outside. Someone who was the least likely to do so, the least expected. He came, and although I was shocked, he offered me what I needed most. He gave me a meal of bread and wine. He bound my broken heart up. He began to heal the wounds in my life. He didn't just save me and leave me. He carried me to a place and gave me over to a, a local redemptive gathering of people who could also love me and get me stronger. He opened his bag, and he left me with all the resources I would need in my life. He equipped me with things from heaven that I never could have imagined. And then he held my face and he said, I'll be back for you someday. And all your debts, whatever you incur, I'll cover. But now it's time for you to go and help others the same way I helped you. Go into the world and be a witness. Tell them what I've done and go do that for them. Pass this on. What I've done for you. You do for others. And what this tells me is that Jesus was our good Samaritan. He found us when life and sin and all other pursuits of religion had left us for dead. And he gave his life on a cross for our healing. He held us. He, he saved us. He healed us. But it doesn't end there. He's asked us to go forth now and be like him. And so now we, we former ditch dwellers we have a new meaning we have a new mission we have a powerful message and we go out to a world who's desperately in need and we proclaim that there is a savior and a way for redemption because we know that jesus is the way that our rescue came in the most shocking of unexpected of ways that Jesus was our good Samaritan, and now we in turn go and be the good Samaritan to others. So who is your neighbor? I would say this, don't worry about that. How about you just go and be a neighbor? 
What kind of people should you love? I would say don't worry about that. Just go and love people, period. The religious experts, they had it right. They knew it was love God, love people, but their hearts were far from it. And Orchard, what I pray for us and what I hope for us is we are a church who, who we, we have the answer, right? Love God, love people, but that our hearts burn that way. So my prayer today is that as you come and you get the sacrifice of Jesus, this cup of gold, symbolic, symbolic of his blood and body, and as you sit down, um, who does he want you to be the Good Samaritan to? Who is it you move across the street to, 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 to not have contact with? Ask him forgiveness in those areas. And then for others of us in here, you might need some special prayer. We got the back over there. But there's some people in here who you would say, well, I, I'm still in the ditch. <laughs> I need rescue. I need rescue this morning. And if that's you, I want to give you an opportunity to pray with me today. This prayer declares Jesus Christ is Lord, and it asks him to come and heal you and rescue you. So pray, everybody, let's pray. Jesus, I need you. I give you my life. Fill me with your spirit. Rescue me from my condition. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Orchard, let's respond.